0: You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of James. Here's Nate. Well, James wastes no time in his brief epistle. The first subject, which we've already covered in the first 12 verses of chapter 1, deals with the subject of trials, how to redeem them, how to respond to them. Here in verse 13, James moves into the subject of temptation. He says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. And in the few verses that follow, I hope to draw out five specific truths that will help us overcome temptation. We live in a world that is beset with temptation. And the first sort of weapon that would be at our disposal is to understand the nature of temptation. And and to understand it, what I mean is to simply ask the question, why does James place this subject on temptation right on the heels of the subject of trials? In fact, This word for tempted is the same exact Greek word for the word for trials. It's just a matter of perspective. It can be translated either way. And it's been very clear up to this point that James has been dealing with the subject of trials But now he is dealing specifically with something that can turn into sin. And so he's dealing with the subject of temptation. And one of the most important things to understand about temptation is that often trial will turn into temptation. In other words, you know, the word for trial, it's not just a word that means a hard time or a difficulty. It means a testing, and a time of testing in our lives where we're going through something difficult, something painstaking. It's drawing out good parts of our character. It's cutting away the bad parts of our nature. It's developing and cultivating perseverance within us, steadfastness within us. Oftentimes, though, those testings will produce temptation. The people of Israel, obviously, are a great example Of this throughout their national history. They were tested when, after Moses and Aaron announced to Pharaoh that God wanted him to let his people go, Pharaoh made their servitude harsher there in Egypt. And the people in that test were then tempted to become angry with God. When they approached the Red Sea and the Egyptian army came bearing down upon them. This was a test of their faith that produced the temptation to panic and to fear. When they came to the waters at Mara, assuming that these waters would quench the deep thirst that they'd acquired in their brief moment there in the wilderness and when they were tested After they drank of it and discovered that it was bitter water unsuited for drink, they were then tempted to complain against Moses and against God. On and on throughout the people of Israel's history, whether it was the absence of Moses and the temptation to turn to idolatry or the appearance of giants in the land and the temptation to then quit moving forward into that promised land, the trial or the testing of the people of Israel often turned into a moment of temptation. And this is helpful for us to understand because for one, as a pastor, I discover so many times where someone has given into a temptation and there's no excuse. You can't blame it on a trial or a testing. But oftentimes I've discovered that their testings or their moments of difficulty will give way to then a temptation that is attached to that difficulty. How many times I've met men who, because of pressure in uh, their workplace, pressure to provide for their family, feeling that financial strain, it's a test that they're going through. It's a trial designed to give them steadfastness and perseverance. They should Go to God and ask him for wisdom in the midst of that trial. But instead of pressing into God, a temptation presents itself. Look at pornography for a moment to escape the consciousness of the pressure that you're under. Drink a little too long. Stay a little too long at the bottle. Have one too many. Dole the senses in that kind of way. A person is in a hard or difficult marriage. It's a trial. It's a test. And then an old friend, an old flame pops up on the internet. You know, loneliness. It's a trial. It's a difficulty. But often it leads to a temptation to compromise in a relationship. Low-grade persecution. And someone is tempted to give up on their morals and cash in their relationship With Jesus. Little fruit in the ministry, and someone is tempted to quit and to pull away. There are so many times that trials in our lives will turn into temptations within our lives. That's why James had already told us in verse 12: Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. You stay in it, there's a great reward that is coming when you resist the temptation attached to that trial. Now, the second thing we need to know in the midst of temptation is this. God is not the source of temptation. This is what James said in verse 13. Let no one say when he's tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. The natural response, I think, to trials So often is to blame God and the natural response is to blame God for our temptation and for giving into even temptation, you know, to say things like, well, uh, he made it this thing that I've been tempted to engage in or to abuse. He made it. You know, he, I, I'm, I'm getting drunk all the time, but you know, God made the ingredients. He didn't have to make them or I'm, you know, abusing a sexual relationship and experience. I'm not experiencing it within the confines of what God designed it for, but you know, he's the one that made it feel good and be a, a pleasurable experience. He's the one that made me this way or I find we often blame God, not because he created it, but because of his sovereignty. We think to ourselves, well, certainly he could have kept me from that temptation. He didn't want me to do it. And so if he didn't want me to do it, he shouldn't have let it into my life. But because he let it into my life, then he must want me to do it. And then sometimes we blame his nature. We say silly things like, well, God must want me to be Happy, And he has bigger concerns than what I do with my life and and whether I'm sinning or not. He certainly doesn't care about these mundane details of my life. Listen, God is not to blame. That's our natural response. He says, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. God cannot be tempted with evil. He himself tempts no one. So we know that God's not the source of temptation because number one, God is not tempted. You know, he's never sinned. He never will sin. He can never sin. He does not even know how to sin. He's holy. And then secondly, God does not tempt. He's blameless. He cannot be held responsible for even one person's temptation In this life, God is not to blame. And so understand number two, God is not the source of temptation. So, number one, you know, understanding that trials often give way to temptation. But number two, God is not the source of temptation. But number three, it's our own desires that make temptation effective. We might ask the question then, well, if I'm not allowed to blame God, then who is to blame? Well, James says in verse 14, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. In other words, it's our own desires that make temptation effective. Our own desires are to blame. We're looking around trying to blame someone else, but it comes from within. It's not God. It's not the world. It's not even the devil. It's our own natural flesh. And the natural response is to take good desires and to pervert them. That's just what we do. God's given us desires that enable life. Aren't we thankful that we have desires like hunger and thirst and fatigue and a sex drive? If we didn't have these things, we wouldn't eat. We wouldn't drink. We wouldn't sleep. We wouldn't have sexual relationships and procreate. So we're thankful for these drives that God has placed inside of us. And spiritual people like to try to take these normal desires and deny themselves from them, making themselves less than human. But the natural man, the carnal man, loves to give in to every desire, making them less than human as well. Too much food, too much drink, too much rest, too much leisure, too much sex, and too many wrong environments. And so just because we desire it doesn't make it right. Desire does not indicate design. Just because we want it doesn't mean that God made us to be fulfilled in that way. And so we need to understand it's our own desire that makes temptation effective. We have to own it. We have to realize that there are these desires, however dormant they might be, dwelling inside of us. Paul said in Galatians 5, verse 19 to 21, he said, Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, Wild parties and things like these, I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit, Paul says, the kingdom of God. It's good for us to understand that in our own nature, left to our own devices and our own desires, Galatians five nineteen to 21 is where we're going to go. We are going to go. To that list, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, etc. And so, what can we do to curb temptation? Well, understand that it's our own desires that make temptation effective. So we have to be controlled by a greater desire. We need the help of the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5, same context and setting as the horrible list that I just read to you from Galatians 5. Paul said walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh and later on he said but the fruit of the spirit is love joy peace patience kindness goodness faithfulness gentleness self control against such there is no law it's important for us to understand that if we want to manifest something different than the or from the galatians 5:19 to 21 list then we have to have a walk with the Holy Spirit. Because when we're walking with the Lord, the fruit of the Spirit, this fruitfulness comes out of our lives. Something is born from our lives. As we fellowship with Christ, this fruit comes out of our lives. And as this fruit comes out of our lives, it's the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Oh, that a man would be kind to his wife. Goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, just a gentle disposition, not born that way, but made that way by the Spirit of God. And the last, and I think the final frontier for us, he says, self-control. Against such there is no law. You see, when we're walking with the Lord, Self-control is that thing that enables us to overcome the luring and the enticing of our own desires. So understand that those desires are strong, but walking with the Spirit gives us self-control over those desires. Now understand as well, number four, that temptation is designed to obliterate your life. Notice what he said. We already read verse 14, but we'll read on into verse 15 as well. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Notice first here that. Temptation is designed, by design. It's designed to look attractive. He uses the phrase in verse 14, lured and enticed. These are hunting and fishing terms. You bait the hook, you set the lure, and you set a trap, you entice into a trap. And just so fascinating. You think of, you know, any kind of game or or animal that's out there that is being hunted. You think of the fish in the ocean and there he is swimming along and he sees what he thinks to be something good for him. That's really what it is. He sees perhaps a worm that's placed on a hook, but he doesn't see the hook. He just sees the worm. He thinks to himself, this is something that will be good for me to eat something good for me to experience. And that's the way that temptation works. You see something that is clearly forbidden in the word of God, but your desire says, this is good for me. This is good for me. No, it's designed to look attractive. It's designed to look good for you and to you, but behind it, there is something else. Behind it, of course, we understand in the hunting and fishing analogy is death. And that's exactly what he says with another analogy that he uses in verse 15. When the desire conceives, so now we have a birthing analogy. It conceives, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, well, it brings forth death. There's this process of destruction that enters into our lives as a result of temptation. And its ultimate goal is to obliterate our lives. Temptation can bring forth death. Temptation can obliterate your life. Think about the life of David. What an incredible example of this. God looked for a man that was like-hearted with him. He found this young man, David, a man who loved the Lord. He slayed the giant the only man to think of God that day out on the battlefield, devoted to the Lord, the sweet psalmist of Israel, devotionally connected to God, a man who would fight for God and sing to God and write to God and pray to God and defend the honor and the glory of God and wanted to build a house for God. David was a man's man, but he was God's man. But a day came in David's life where he, at the time when the kings normally went out to battle, decided to stay home from the fight, 2 Samuel chapter 11. That statement in and of itself is a great help to us in overcoming temptation. Don't avoid the fight, stay in the battle, stay in the fight. But a day came where David was walking on the roof of his house, and from the balcony there. He could look down into the private area of someone else's house. He didn't know whose house it was. It was the house of Uriah the Hittite. And Uriah's wife was there. She was bathing. She was a beautiful woman to behold. Now, you can make an easy case that at that moment, just, you know, turning the corner, looking out from his palace, Seeing that split second, that moment, that first glance wasn't the sin for David. The sin was when he began to gaze upon her beauty. What he should have done. At that first moment when he saw a woman and saw something that he knew that he shouldn't see, he should have ran inside and should have said, Listen, we there's someone out there I shouldn't see. None of us should see either. She needs to build a wall or we need to build a wall, but some way, somehow we need to avoid what just happened and he should have got it completely into the light immediately. But instead he set his gaze upon her and and what he did is he went in and all he did is he asked the simple question, who is this woman? Who is this woman? He inquired about the woman. You know, maybe even telling himself in his heart that he only wanted to know whether she was already committed to someone else, whether she was already married to someone else or not. And this betrayed another sin in David's life, the sin of polygamy. Uh, The men in Israel weren't committing that crime for the most part, but some of the kings now were beginning to do it even though they'd been warned by God not to, David was behaving like the kings of the nations around him and accumulating numerous wives, not nearly as many as his son Solomon would accumulate, but nonetheless, he was accumulating wives. And had he resisted that sin, he may have been able to resist this sin, but he told himself probably, hey, she maybe is an unmarried woman, and he began to inquire. And that question That was the thing that caused temptation to conceive. And even when he found out that she was a married woman, married to one of his mighty men, David still slept with her, impregnated her, eventually murdered her husband. It brought death not just to Uriah, but death into David's own life. There was physical death that came into his family's life and structure and history as a result of him giving into this moment of temptation. God forgave him, absolutely, but he invited death and chaos into generations of his family's history as a result of giving in to that moment of temptation. Understand, it is not there to lead to life. It is there to obliterate your life. Be careful. Be careful is all I'm trying to say at this point here in James chapter 1. When it is fully grown, it brings forth death. Now as a side point, I should say this. The temptation itself, just the moment where you know that there is a temptation there and a decision to be made, we have to understand that the temptation itself is not the sin. Jesus was Tempted in all all points as we are, yet without sin, the book of Hebrews tells us. And so when a person experiences temptation, sometimes they say to themselves, well, the mere experience of the temptation is tantamount to guilt and having given in. No, not the case. We are tempted. We are in these earthly bodies But we need to walk with the Lord and have him strengthen us to resist temptation. So we've looked at four things so far. We've seen that number one, trial often turns into temptation. Number two, God is not the source of temptation. Number three, our own desires make temptation effective. And number four, temptation can obliterate your life. Number five. What can we do to really overcome? What is that secret weapon? It's great to know these things about temptation. But notice what he says in verse 16. This is really the thing that offers us the best protection against temptation. He says, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow Due to change of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Why does James here give an exhortation for his brothers in Christ, his family in Christ? Why does he give an exhortation to not be deceived? He says, Do not be deceived. Well, notice what follows he says. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. In other words, James is trying to let us know, listen, don't be deceived. God is the one who gives good and perfect gifts. In fact, he's the one who gives every good and perfect gift. You see, the deception that James is warning us against is the age-old deception that Satan whispered into the ears of Adam and Eve. Has God really said, and in the day that you eat of it, God knows that you will be like him. They whispered, he whispered into Eve's ear and said, listen, God is holding out on you. There is something good that God has withheld from you. James says, don't be deceived in that way. Every good gift And every perfect gift is from above, from the Father of lights. It does not come from around us. It does not come from within us. They come down from the Father of lights. He gives good gifts. He gives the new birth and wisdom and salvation and his kingdom and his son and his spirit. And so one thing we need to know here is that God's goodness is a great barrier against yielding to temptation. That David just simply remembered, oh, God was good to me and has been good to me. This is what God said when David was finally busted for that sin that we reflected on just a moment ago. 2 Samuel 12, verse 7 and 8, Nathan said to David, you're the man, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Here's God's voice. I anointed you, David, king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. In other words, God is saying, David, why did you go into this realm or this area of sin? Didn't you remember that I have been so good to you? All I've ever done is give to you. And if the things I've given to you weren't enough, I would have given you as much more. Remembering the goodness of God is a great barrier against yielding to temptation. Listen, it's minor faith to say that all that is good is from God, but it is major faith to say that all that is from God is good. And, Here, James tells us, listen, don't be deceived. Know where the good and the best and the right and the perfect gifts come from. So, lastly, number five, our secret weapon against temptation is a relationship with God. It's the best protection against temptation. Because when you're walking with the Lord and enjoying the Lord on a daily basis, you realize He's good. He gives me every good gift, He gives me every perfect gift. So, when some temptation presents itself, I don't need to go there because I don't want to do anything that would dull my senses from experiencing God. You know, someone holds something out to me that would intoxicate me or cause me to become high or stoned or whatever. And I say to myself, no, why would I do that? Why would I want to do anything that would dull my senses against the God who gives me every good and every perfect gift. I want to experience him in every single way that I can. Every good, every perfect gift comes down from him. And James says, and he doesn't change. There's no variation or shadow due to change with him. And he says, and remember verse 18, God brought us forth by his own will, by the word of truth. In other words, he birthed us again by the gospel That we should be a special people, the first fruits of his people, of his creatures. That we, the church, should set the tone for others who would also become born again. Stand in the face of temptation. It exists, but the Lord can and will, if you fellowship with him, strengthen you through it. God bless you and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings, or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.